Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a movie person. How many movie people do we have? You just love to watch movies. Um, I have one on all the time. I like it as white noise in the background while I'm making dinner or cleaning the house or whatever. I always have a movie on. And I mostly love any movie that shows the power of nature. And there are a handful of crazy ones out there like that. And anytime they're on TV, I will stop and watch them every single time. It doesn't matter if I've just watched it two hours earlier. I'm to watch it again if they're playing it back to back. Well, one that has been on TV a lot lately is a movie called The Day After Tomorrow. Um, and in this one, there is one scene that I watched this movie for. I will watch it all the way up to this scene. This is the scene that I want to see, and I will stop and watch it every time, waiting for this scene. And I want you to watch it with me, okay? Um, setting it up just a little bit in this scene, you guys, the polar ice caps have just melted instantly. Okay, and it has raised the sea level to the point of unleashing a mega tsunami. And so what you are about to see is a supersized, totally not real, CGI'd tsunami. Take a look. Right? So fake. Well, I'm not morbid, you guys. I'm not fascinated by this because I like to see things get destroyed. I'm really not. I am simply fascinated and mesmerized by the power, the sheer power that nature has to just toss things around on a whim, to destroy a city in seconds that took decades to build. That kind of power actually just blows my mind. And we can watch this and maybe not be too bothered by it because obviously fake. Tsunamis like that honestly can't really happen. The physics of our earth do not allow for that unless like an asteroid or something hits. So, so fake. But all you have to do really right now is turn on the TV and see the real kind of devastation that the power of nature can unleash, right? Hurricane Ida has destroyed parts of our country and it has flooded New York City. And I am not going to show you images of that out of respect for what people have been through this week and for how much has been lost in our country this week. And honestly, those images are far too real. But if you do see those images, what you will notice is that there are families and people sitting in the middle of rubble that used to be their homes, dream homes that took years to build or lying like toothpicks on the ground. Communities that took lifetimes to establish are just wrecked in minutes. It's devastating. And you know, most of the time when I think about that kind of devastating power, that destructive power, I think about it as a power that is so far from me, is so far outside of me, right? It's a power that only nature possesses. But the truth is, 
that you and I possess a power that is just as fierce and it is just as destructive as the ones we find in nature. And maybe it's a force that is even more powerful and it is the power of our words. Take a look at what Proverbs says about the power of our words. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I want you to see two words here, death and life are in the power of our words. And as that video showed us earlier, every time we open our mouths, we put something into the universe with the use of our words. We either put forth a creative power or we put forth a destructive power through the use of our words. And that's what I wanna look at today. The power of your words, specifically the power to destroy with how you use them. And I want you to see this morning that every single one of us sitting here, we have the power to unleash a word tsunami, okay? A word tsunami. We are all capable of it and have probably done it. We have all destroyed at some point with our words, okay? Can we be honest about that? Have we all done it? Have we all word tsunamied someone? Okay, we have. But the truth is too, that everyone here can, has mostly, most likely been on the receiving end of some very hurtful and destructive, devastating words. So I don't really need to convince you this morning that words hurt, do I? I think we can all agree on that. Okay, so I want you to hold on to that truth for a second. Words destroy, words hurt, okay? Here's another truth that I want you to hold on to. If I were at to ask you this morning, do you believe that what you say matter? Do you believe that your words matter? I think that you would say yes, right? I believe that my words matter. Of course, my words are incredibly important. When my kids are struggling with something, the words I use to encourage them in that moment, they matter. My words matter when I'm sitting with someone who has lost a spouse or who has lost a child. What I say in that moment it matters. And my words matter when I'm trying to explain something profound about God for which usually there are no words. In those moments, I don't want to get that wrong. So my words matter. And I believe that you believe that your words matter too because every single one of us has been in a situation where you thought to yourself, oh my gosh, I hope I don't mess this up with what I say. I hope I get this right. I hope my words are gonna be helpful and meaningful and healing, encouraging. But let me ask you, are there times when we go against what we believe? Are they times when we forget what we believe. As much as I believe my words matter, are there times I just forget? And you see, I think that there are. There are times when we do forget that truth. And it's usually when we're provoked, right? Personally, when someone uses their words to attack me, betray, insult, or even challenge me, my usual response is, Come at me, bro. Like, come at me. I am ready. Let's do this. When I am provoked, I usually forget about what I believe. Because I think that the truth that we all know is that when we are provoked, our words are really hard to control. And we lose all sense of what we believe to be true about their power, and we snap. And it happens in an instant. And you know how this goes, you guys. 
you're driving down the road one day, maybe listening to your favorite worship song, got the window rolled down, the wind's blowing through your hair, maybe you're waving, it's a good day, waving to people, until some jerk in an SUV cuts you off, and in a flash second, a word tsunami ensues, and your favorite colorful words begin to drown out the sound of that worship song that's playing. And you notice that the hand that's out the window waving is not waving anymore. Now it's gesturing something, right? And so you go from life-giving worship one minute to curse-filled word tsunami the next. And thank goodness the other person in that car did not hear you, right? Well, my guess is that everyone um, who is sitting here this morning can sit and think of a time when you word tsunamied someone. Only that person wasn't driving away in an SUV. That person was standing right in front of you. And as you let the words pour out of your mouth, that tidal wave of words destroyed that relationship that took years to build, right? Well, Crosswinds, I believe that we believe that our words matter. But the minute we are offended or challenged or feel put upon or whatever, the minute some kind of conflict enters our life, the very first line of defense that we use to defend our beliefs, our egos, our point of view, our political views, whatever, the very first line of defense that we always seem to use is our words. And in those moments, we actually forget what we believe. The series that we are in this morning is called If I Really Believe. And it's all about this idea that if we believe something to be true, then it's going to impact how we live our lives. Now, we've already established that we believe that our words matter. But here's the question. How do we make them matter when someone comes at us and verbally attacks us? How do we make them matter when we want to word tsunami someone What do we do in a situation like that? What words do we choose? And so this morning, I want to show you the words, okay? Because the truth is, if we really believe our words matter, then we would choose good words when we're provoked. If we really believe what we say matters, we will choose good words when we are provoked. And I'm telling you, Jesus was a master at this. And this morning, I want to show you the kind of good words that he chose, okay? So we are going to be reading out of Luke chapter 10 today. It's a familiar story. We're going to see what kind of conflict Jesus was involved in and how he responded, okay? Let's read it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Here it goes. It says, in Jesus... As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, let me explain to you just a teeny bit about what's going on here. Mary and Martha are sisters. They have a brother named Lazarus, and they were friends of Jesus. And they lived in this town named Bethany, and it was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was the place where Jesus used to preach. And because he himself didn't have a home, they let him 
live with them for a while while he had his preaching ministry. Um, we know that this home belonged, belonged to Martha. She was the head of the household. We know it was a huge house because she was able to house Jesus and the 12 disciples at the same time. So a pretty big home. And what would happen is uh, after Jesus would teach, he and his disciples would go back to her house and take whoever was with them back to the house. And they would kind of do church right in the middle of Martha's living room. And it was her job to be the host, okay? Now think about it. Most of the time, this would be kind of a drop-in thing. You know, you couldn't call ahead or text ahead and say, I'm bringing 35 people with me. So there was no warning. Jesus would show up with his movable church, and Mary would have to host, or Martha and Mary would have to host. Okay, here's what you need to know. Hosting in that day was a huge deal. Okay, it was a social requirement that women would be the ones to host. Um, it was considered shameful if you didn't host. If you turned any way away, anyone away from your home, even if you didn't know them, it would be considered shameful. You would bring shame upon your family in the community if anyone found out that you did not host well. So it was a big deal. And in this situation, Jesus shows up, and he starts to teach, and Mary's like, okay, I got to get the charcuterie board ready. I got to chill the craft beer. I got to put the hot appetizers in the oven. And as she is reviewing her to-do list, she looks over at her sister, who is supposed to be helping her not bring shame upon their family. And she sees her sister doing nothing. And you guys, Mary or Martha loses her mind. She just loses her marbles right there. She's so angry at her sister. But who does she yell at? She's coming at Jesus. She is so upset because he has chosen their house to host this whole group of people. And they're failing at hospitality. And it is embarrassing for him too. So what does Martha do? She rolls up her sleeves and she word tsunamis Jesus right in the middle of his sermon. And she yells at him in front of everyone. Now the Bible doesn't say she yelled, but there is an exclamation point after that. So I'm guessing she did not say this quietly. Now, let me tell you, if I were Jesus and I were in the middle of teaching, like I am now, in front of a big group, like I am now, and Derek Walker, our creative arts pastor, came up on stage and he interrupted me and he started complaining about Sean, our video guy, because Sean wasn't in the back booth helping him that I should stop what I'm doing and go get him and tell him to help him, I'd be a little upset too, right? Derek would never do that, by the way. I have to tell you that. He's like, please tell them that I would never do that. Derek would never do that. Very gentle guy. But I would snap too. But Jesus doesn't snap. Jesus uses good words, and this is what he says. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. Now, you guys, anytime you see a word repeated in the Bible or a name specifically repeated in the Bible, you've got to pay attention to it. It's like there's big arrows pointing down on it because Jesus is using his words in a very specific way. And here's what you need to know. Whenever names are repeated in the Bible, it's meant to express love and compassion toward the person being spoken to. And so when Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, he is affirming his love in compassion for her. It's a tender statement. And then after he says her name twice, he affirms what's going on with her. He's like, I can see you're busy and you are so upset. 
And so Martha, Martha, while it is just two words, it means Martha, my friend, who I love. I know how busy you are getting everything ready for me, and I appreciate it. I can see how stressed out you are right now. I see what's happening. No one is helping you, and you're upset. And in essence, he's saying, you know what? I love you, and I see you. And so when Jesus was provoked, he chose words to elevate Martha in the conversation. That is the first thing Jesus does with his words in this conversation. He elevates her. He brings her to a place in the conversation where her situation is no longer invisible to him. I love you. I see you. I want you to stop right now and think about this past week. Were you provoked this past week? Did someone kind of come at you with their words maybe? Maybe it wasn't a full-blown verbal attack. Maybe someone was just digging at you a little bit. What was your first response I'm guessing it maybe wasn't to elevate that person. Maybe it wasn't, hey, I love you, I see you. I'm really, really trying to learn this right now, you guys, and put this into practice right now with my kids. Can we all agree that kids snap? Do kids snap? Sometimes they snap with their words. Well, when my kids snap with their words, my first instinct is to snap back and defend myself. And let me tell you, when I do that, the conversation immediately stops and the stomping begins. We call it T-Rexing at our house. Like everybody starts stomping. And when the stomping starts, you can hear it in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> but I am learning. I am learning that I can stop for a minute. And I respond with, hey, I love you. I see you. They de-escalate. And the T-Rexing stops. And the conversation begins. And that's why elevating is so important. You guys hear this. Elevating is so important because it sets people up for the next right set of words that you are going to say. It sets them up for what you're going to say next. It makes them actually want to hear what you have to say next. And haven't you felt that to be true of yourself when you go at someone with your words and you say something maybe ugly and they respond back with, oh, I understand. I can see how that would be upsetting for you. Don't you find it easier to maybe listen to what they have to say next? And you know what? Some of your parents, you parents out there, you're figuring this out the way I am, that if you want to change the conversation with your kids or with anyone, you need to elevate that person first. I love you. I see you. And more often than not, it prepares them for what come ne comes next in the dialogue, okay? Okay, well, once Jesus kind of elevates Martha in this conversation, he uses more good words. And the second thing that he does is he appropriately challenges her. He challenges her. Look again at what he says in 1042. He says, but few things are needed, Martha, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay. Before Jesus lays down this challenge to her, something happens before that. And you got to hang with me for a second on this, okay? Remember what I told you earlier, that Martha's perspective of a woman's role was in alignment with her culture. She was responsible for getting the hospitality thing right, or her family will be shamed in the community, okay? And not only that, she knows that this practice of hospitality is actually a catalyst for Jesus' message, for, to have it spread. 
I mean, this is really how the early church exploded onto the scene. It was by people opening their homes and allowing others to congregate. So there's a lot riding on this. There are a lot, the stakes are real high right now. Well, if we look closely at the Greek, which we are not going to do this morning, okay, but you're going to have to take my word for it. There's a little Greek particle in this sentence that we don't read in English, but it conveys some meaning in Greek. And it sets the sentence up in a way that tells the reader, Jesus agrees with her frustration. He is affirming that it is really okay for her to feel this way. He's saying, you know what, Martha, based on the culture, yeah, you're the one who's supposed to do it. It's okay for you to be mad that no one's helping you. And Martha, I get why you're coming to me. I'm the rabbi. I'm the one who makes sure everyone is culturally appropriate in the moment. You're expecting me to, to do something about this. I get it. It's okay. And the understanding of this passage is that while Jesus is about to challenge Martha, he agrees with her first. And that's what he's showing us here is that there is always a need and a challenge to first affirm the other person's point of view and then present your challenge. But do you know what we do when we're about to challenge someone? We like to first affirm why they're wrong, don't we? Don't we like to do that? I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and then I'm going to tell you why I'm right. Now, everyone has a go-to move that they use. It's a, a body language move that they use when you're listening to someone and you know they're wrong. My move is the eye roll. I love the eye roll. Someone's talking to me, you're obviously wrong. I'm gonna roll my eyes at you, okay? What's your move? Are some of you are arm crossers and foot tappers and head shakers at the, at the same time, right? What's your go-to move? Think about it. And at the count of three, show me your move. One, two, three. Show me your move. Someone's talking and they're wrong. It's a good one right there. What about you guys up there? They're just looking at me like I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm asking them to do it. Well, everyone's got the go-to move, the thing that we use to tell someone that they're wrong with our body language. And here is what I need you to do and decide to do it right now. You need to lose the move, okay? Lose the move, and resist the desire to tell someone that they are wrong, but affirm them first. You guys, before you challenge someone's thinking, right now, predetermine that before you state your case, you will understand theirs first. It's so important. That's why we call it an appropriate challenge. It has to be done right. And it matters. Because chances are, if you take the time to understand them, they will take the time to understand you, right? Okay. Well, once Martha is affirmed and she feels understood, then Jesus throws down the challenge. He says, few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. In other words, what he's saying, he's like, Martha, can I just challenge you for a second? Maybe you need to look at hospitality and preparation another way. The preparation that you're doing, it's really important. I get it. But Mary is undergoing a different type of preparation that will impact her life no matter what. She's sitting at my feet, and she is preparing herself to receive me. And Martha, if, I could just, if you could just make a small shift in your thinking, you would see that we both value preparation. But the preparation I'm talking about is not a physical one. 
It is a spiritual one, and it will change your entire life. Um, have, have you ever seen these pictures? There's a ton of them out there. There are these, uh, these crazy pictures that when you look at them, they kind of seem impossible at first. Uh, take a look at this one, this first one. It looks nuts, right? Like, I don't even know how she's doing that. But if you flip this picture 90 degrees, you'll see it's not really a big deal, right? Okay, well, let's look at this next one. Is the guy really holding on by one arm trying to save his bike? Flip it 90 degrees, he's just laying on the ground holding on to his bike, right? Not impossible. Well, look at this last one. Is it a rock floating in space or we rotated 180 degrees? Is it the reflection of a rock in a pond? You see, how you see things depends on your perspective, right? And by looking at these pictures, what we just saw was that a slight shift made the impossible possible, right? And with a few very carefully chosen words, Jesus challenges Martha to shift her perspective and now see things from his point of view. Just a slight shift so she can begin to see things another way, okay? And this is so brilliant. You guys, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. You know what happens when another person begins to consider, they may not agree with, but consider something from your point of view? You end up defending yourself without being defensive. Isn't that brilliant? You defend yourself without being defensive. You get your point of view across without a word tsunami, right? They begin to understand you. And isn't that the goal in the first place? That when someone provokes you, don't you want to be seen and understood as well? Yeah, I think we all do, right? Well, um, after Jesus puts forth this very important and appropriate challenge, he urges her to see his side of things. The last thing that Jesus says in this passage is this. What does he say after verse 42? Silence. And you're right. Because Jesus says nothing. You guys, he says nothing. That is the end of Luke chapter 10. He says nothing else after he puts forth this challenge. And I guarantee you that if there was something important that he needed to say, it would be recorded right there. It would be recorded. But there is nothing there. There's nothing. And I think that is the most brilliant move on the part of Jesus that he just stops talking. And he gives space for his challenge to take root. And that's the third intentional way that Jesus uses his words when someone provokes him. He gives space. And what I need us to see is that sometimes the best use of our words is when we don't use them at all. And we give space for the person to just take in and process what we've just said, right? Have you ever done uh, what I call chase the conversation? I am famous for this in my house. My husband and I will appropriately come to an end of a conversation we will both start to walk away, and as I'm walking away, everything I didn't say in that conversation, every other issue I did not bring up, downloads in my brain, and I chase that conversation. I chase it up the stairs, I chase it down the stairs, I will chase it to the office, to the mailbox. I will chase it around the backyard, you guys. I will chase the conversation. 
But look what Proverbs 10:19 says. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible. And what does it say? Keep your mouth shut. You guys, when we feel compelled to give utterance to every thought in our heads, it usually ends up ruining the progress, if any, that we have made in a conversation. Jesus knew it, and he was the master at not changing or tra- chasing the conversation, and he just gave space. Why? Because something sacred happens when you create space. God shows up in the lack of words, and he begins to move, and he begins to work and speak. But guess what? He cannot be heard if we are constantly talking over him. We need to learn to give space. Well, um, the big question after this whole dialogue is over is, did Jesus' strategy work? Did it work? Did his strategy of elevate and appropriately challenge and give space, do something for his relationship with Martha in that situation? Well, for the last 2,000 years, whenever a scholar, teacher, theologian, or even the Bible itself talks about Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha are always at the top of the list. They are some of his closest friends. Now, you guys... I totally understand that this picture is not, is not culturally appropriate. Like, we know Jesus wasn't a Caucasian guy, right? He was Middle Eastern. But I want you to see here the affection and the love and the compassion. So did Jesus' strategy work? Well, their relationship was saved. And not only saved, it continued to grow. All because Jesus chose a few good words. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what would it be for us to do the same when we feel provoked to choose good words? I want to give you a new um, if-then statement to put in place this week based on the statement that I gave you earlier, okay? And it's this. If I really believe what I say matters, then I will choose words that elevate, appropriately challenge, and give space when feeling provoked. If I really believe what I say matters, then I will choose words that elevate, appropriately challenge, and give space when feeling provoked. And as we close this morning, I want to challenge you right now, right now, to predetermine what good words you will use when someone comes at you with theirs. And I guarantee you it will happen this week. It might not be a verbal assault. It might just be someone kind of needling you a little bit, but it will happen. And it will be tempting to unleash the word tsunami. But right now, you have to decide that you're going to respond differently. That you will choose good words. And as one of your pastors who loves you, I love you, I see you, I want to pray for you. That when that comes at you this week, you'll do what Jesus did. And you will choose your words wisely. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, you have role modeled so much for us, but this is a tough one. It is so hard to be gracious and compassionate when our feelings are hurt, when we feel offended, when we feel like we need to defend ourselves. But God, you have called us to something higher with our words. You have called us to give life 
with how we choose to use them. And I pray this week that we would have the courage to do that, that you would just kind of download into us right now what you would have us say this week when we are talking to people that we love and maybe words come at us that hurt us. Help us to love in return. Help us to be good. That is a mark of who you created us to be. We are to be good. Help us choose good words. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week, you guys.